Hey, it's uh, great to be here again at K2. Thank you for allowing me to come and speak to you. Um, it's been a while. Um, I don't know if you know this, what's going on with this sermon series of everything you need. We uh, at Elevation up in Layton, we've been doing the exact same sermon series. And so we've been collaborating with K2 in this. So as you've been learning these, these different points of how God, through Peter, wrote this letter and how he's talking to us about everything we need for life, we've been learning this as well at Elevation up north. And so it's kind of letting you in on this little insight that how the valley is really diving into what you need for life. And so I'd like to recap this as, as we've walked through this in the last couple of weeks and everything that God has been speaking to us here at K2 and at Elevation. You know, the first week we talked about this, this topic of what is this thing that you need for life? What is everything that you need for life? And we talked about how that is to know God and that you and I need to know God. And so the next week we talked about how this should be number one on our priority list, that we should give it all we've got to know God more. And then if you, if you read 1 Peter and... Uh, Actually, why don't we say 2 Peter? I'm going to be in the right book here. If you read 2 Peter chapter 1, you can see that Peter actually gives you this laundry list almost as he, as he talks about this is everything you need, that you need to know God, and you need to make it number one in your priority list. And then he starts going through and starts listing out these, these things that you need to add to your faith. And so the first one that we talked about was goodness. And we talked about what that means to have God qualities in our life and what it means to have be morally excellent. And then the second week, Last week, we talked about knowledge, and we talked about taking all of our experiences that we have with God and actually kind of forming them into some kind of understanding. And so this week, we're going to move on in this laundry list that Peter gives us as we continue to talk about this everything you need for life. Look at this with me, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5, as he continues to talk about this, he says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control. Self-control. So Peter leads us now to this idea of self-control in our faith. Now you and I probably don't have the privilege, like Pastor Dave, of hiring a linebacker to come in and just tackle the junk out of us anytime we eat too many M&Ms or swear in German as we lose our sermon. I don't know. He wasn't really swearing. Maybe. I don't know German. But uh, we, we don't have those luxuries of, of really just being able to like, have somebody around us that just beat us every time we lose control. But I don't know about you, and so I'm going to assume that you guys are all just like super in control of your life. So I'm going to talk to you about me. I deal with this. Like when Pastor Dave asked me to come up here and talk about self-control, I was like, really? Me? Like, I need to listen to this. I need a sermon because I am terrible with self-control. I mean, let me, let me give you an example. I was, uh, I was doing this emceeing, this conference down in Arizona at this really large church. And I'm, I'm the MC, getting up and introducing all these great speakers and blah, blah, blah. And so uh, I've got this problem. I love to talk to people. I love to be around people. And I will go on and talk and talk and talk and talk to people. Don't worry, I won't do it today. For the, they got a timer. But uh, I love to just con connect with people. And so I'm emceeing this event and I'm just talking to people. Now, here's the problem. I'm going to be really transparent because I don't go to church here. <laughs> I had to go to the restroom. I've got to be on the stage in like four minutes 
to emcee the next person to come up. And it's, a, it's like this big name Christian author person. I've got to go back in the green room and get them situated. But I'm just, I'm like talking and engaged in this conversation. And I literally at this moment, I thought, man, I need to stop myself and go to the restroom so I can get in there. But I was like, it's all right. I'm going to be okay. I kept on telling myself, I'm like having this war in my head over controlling my body of walking, going and doing what I need to do and going to the green room. But I decide to keep talking. So at the last minute, I decide I'm out of here. I got to hurry up and go to this restroom. Well, now, the, the restrooms at this church were kind of like an airport in the sense where like you walk in, there's one section you walk in, and then it's like a, a big hallway, and then it comes out on the other end, and that's the exit. Well, I was heading down this hallway as fast as I can. And I'm like, okay, I know where the exit is. I'm just going to go through the exit. And so I'm, I'm now, because of losing self-control, I'm trying to, to catch myself up. So I run through the exit, I run into the stall, I sit down. I told you it's going to be kind of transparent here. I'm sitting in this stall and I'm text messaging. Shut up, you do it too. And I'm text messaging on this stall and I hear clink, 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 clink. I'm like, huh, that's an interesting sound of the sole of a shoe. And I hear, oh, Janet, this is the best conference ever. Janet, her voice is really high for uh, her voice. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't see any urinals when I walked in here. And as I'm sitting there, the place is filling up with women. And I'm like, no. The stall door opens next to me and I see shoes and I'm thinking, wait, if she could see my, if I could see her shoes, she can see my shoes. So I end up like, I'm not going to get too graphic for you, but... Basically, I pull some maneuvers that are pretty impressive. And so I'm sitting like this after a while, okay? And I'm just sitting here this whole time going, oh, Jesus, please. I will be controlled from now on. I'll stop talking to people. Like, I'll do what I need to do. You know, I'm, so I'm in this position for like ever. I'm texting people. Can you guys clear the, the restroom, the women's restroom? Why? I heard there's something bad going on in there. You know, I'm like just trying to get, get people out of the restroom, man. So I, I'm just like waiting for this moment. I mean, I'm hearing sound I don't ever want to hear women make. I'm just like, oh, dear Jesus. Ah. Eventually, I, I, I chuck Norris the door down and uh, like run out of this restroom as fast as I can. And, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm petrified. You know, I've got to go up on stage and be the guy that's like, oh, there's the pervert that was in the women's restroom. You know, they've actually done studies on, at the University of Stanford back in the 1960s, they did some studies with kids based on, at that time, they would take a bunch of kids, four and five-year-olds, they would sit them around marshmallows, and they would tell them, don't touch the marshmallow until the timer goes off. And they would see who would grab the marshmallows before the timer went off. And then they would go and study these kids later on in life. And what they found out, that the kids that exerted self-control, self-control at an early age, we're talking four and five-year-olds, Later on in life, these kids were better copers, they were more socially competent, they were self-assertive, they were trustworthy, they were dependable, and they were academically successful. So even at an early age, the studies we've done in universities have shown us that self-control helps you in life. Even from an early age, the kids that were grabbers, they suffered low self-esteem, they were usually stubborn and prone to envy and easily frustrated later on in life. 
So Peter tells you and I here that in our faith, we need to add this thing called self-control. Now, let's just have a show of hands. How many of you want to say you got this one down? I know you really want to raise your hand. I don't know if I, I've got this one down. And I'm learning this every day in my life. And so when I read that self-control is followed after my goodness, after my knowledge of God, I was really excited to learn about this because I really want this in my life. I really want this. I mean, we, when we don't have self-control... I mean, how many of us are honest enough to admit it to the people that are closest to us in life? And be like, man, I really have a problem with this. I really don't have control with this. We don't. It's almost embarrassing when we can't have control over something in our life. Is it not? Okay, maybe for me only. It's really embarrassing. So here's the question I ask myself as I'm walking through this. Why do I lack self-control? Why do I lack self-control in some areas of my life? And why does it seem that everyone struggles with self-control? And this is what I came up with. Maybe it's because we have some deep hurts from our past and in our present. And thus we're unhappy with ourselves and we're unhappy with the situation. And so Losing control is kind of like our medication. We can indulge in something to medicate ourselves because we think that will bring us happiness. Does that make sense? So here gives you an example. If I medicate it and I indulge in this area, maybe I can find happiness for a little while here because my pain is so painful over here. And I can indulge over here and not control myself. And this will make everything okay. The problem with that is it's always temporary. It's always temporary. And so our medication becomes stuff like this. It becomes like drinking, becomes lust, becomes shopping. Yes, women, shopping. My wife will be at the 1130. I will make sure I point this one out over and over. Shopping, <laughs> food flapping our gums, our tongue, drugs, anger, ambition, video games, internet, social networking sites, sports, ouch, movies, you name it. So all of a sudden these medicators become our temptations and then we can't control them because we're using them in a way God didn't intend them to be used. We're using them to mask and God didn't intend for these things to mask. God didn't intend for us to overindulge in these areas. Let me ask this question again. What is self-control? Let's dive into even what the New Testament, the Old Testament says about self-control. Self-control, actually the word uh, here that we find in 2 Peter, the Greek word, actually means um, to control, to master your desires and your passions. It usually would be referred to a sexual appetite for people or people that were indulging in the flesh but it actually was used in broad terms to actually say that to control your will. And the Greeks would say that if you had self-control, that you could actually master your body and the will of your body. So Peter here is telling you that as you grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ, 
as these God qualities have saturated your life, as you've taken all of your experiences and you've formed them into an understanding of who God is, that he, the next thing in line of this is understanding who you are and controlling who you are and why you do what you do. And this is part of our faith. This is part of following God. This is part of knowing God more. Proverbs 25, 28, it says this. A person without self-control is as defenseless as a city with broken walls. Now, the word walls here actually means to protect something. And we don't have it here in the United States. You can't go to find a city with a bunch of walls around it protecting it. If you go to Europe, they've got cities all over the place where they built walls around it to protect it. You protect what you value. And so the, the person that's writing here in Proverbs is telling you and I that if you want to protect your life, the thing that you value, you need to put up self-control. And it becomes the wall around your life to protect what you value most, your life. And if you don't have this, it leads to temptation. It lets sin run amok and allows you to indulge in things that God didn't create for you to indulge in. Let's turn to Luke chapter 15. If you got a Bible with you, if you've spent any time in church, you've read this story that we're gonna read today. But hopefully we're gonna look at it in a different light here. It's the story of the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And I'm going to read this to you. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what happens in this story and how it relates to this idea of self-control in your life. And then, well, not you guys. You guys are perfect. But me and my life. Verse 11. It says this. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now. Instead of waiting until until you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now, first of all, this is very common in this time period. Um, In the Jewish custom, uh, the older son would receive two-thirds of his father's inheritance, and the younger son would receive one-third of his father's inheritance. And you could actually cash this in at any time during your life. Like, I think about that, and I'm like, man, I I got kids. I'm like, man, what if they came to me now, and they're like, you know what, I want two-thirds of what you got. I'm going to have to kill you, you know, like... (laughs) So this was actually pretty common in this story, that this, this, this kid comes and says, Dad, I want my, my share. So he wants a third of what his father has. And his father goes, all right, here you go. So he gives it to him. Um, verse 13, a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and took a trip to a distant land. And there he wasted all, his, all of his money on wild living. Okay, so we're not given this, this younger son's name. We, we don't know what his name is. For our sake, let's, let's give him a name. Let's give him a good Jewish name like Samuel. It's a good Jewish name. So Sam here says, I want dad. I want a third of what you've got. He gives it to him and he leaves home. He takes off. And now he's, he's, we, we see that he's spending everything he got. He, he's, what's the text say? Like wild living is the term that he's got. That this almost uncontrolled living is now part of Sam's life. And let's pretend for our sake if we could pick a modern day place that Sam ran off to, let's call it Vegas. <laughs> so Vegas, Sam heads to Vegas. Why? Because in Vegas, the great marketers of Vegas said, have told you and I that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I don't think you've ever heard that one before, have you? Basically, this is, this is what those marketers are telling you. 
you can lose control in Vegas and don't face any consequences because the consequences will stay here while you go home. Great marketing ploy if that's what you want to indulge yourself in. So Sam runs off to Vegas. He runs off to indulge himself, to start self-medicating from the hurts and pains that he's having in his life. So this first thing that we see that Sam deals with right away is he spends everything he's got. He spends all of his money. So he has a, a spending problem here. Uncontrolled spending plagues him right away. Proverbs 21, 20, it says this, the wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. Over 50% of Americans, so half of you in this room, you spend more money than you actually bring in. And spending more money than we have leads to destruction. Do you want to know why we have a financial crisis at hand? For this very reason. In fact, I don't know if you know this about the state of Utah, but in Utah, we're two times higher than the national average for filing of bankruptcy. Two times higher. There's probably a lot of reasons in Utah why this is. Maybe it's the idea of keeping up with the Joneses in Utah. But spending more than we have leads you and I to destructive habits. Uncontrolled spending. Anybody know who Michael Jackson is? Um, I used to sing the Michael Jackson CD when I was a kid and do all the dances. I wanted to be Michael Jackson when I was a kid. I even dressed up like him at Halloween, found some shoe polish. I polished my face up. It was awesome. <laughs> New York Times reported this about Michael Jackson's camp. They said this. They, uh, one, of the, one of his financial advisors said, I think that Michael never had any concept of fiscal responsibility or logical fiscal responsibility. He was an individual that had been overindulged by those that represented him or worked for him for all of his life. There was no planning in terms of allocation of how much he should spend. And as a businessman, you can forecast your spending for the next six months to a year. But for Michael, it was whatever he wanted at the time he wanted it. Millions of dollars annually were spent on plane charters, purchases of antiques and paintings. And if you want to take a trip to London, that's one thing. But if you want to continue that trip and have an entourage of 20 people go with you, it gets expensive. Look, I don't know what's going on in Michael Jackson's life. I don't know what the redemptive part of this could be. I don't, I don't know Michael Jackson personally. But what I can tell you that's being reported is that this guy has made billions and he's, on the ver- and he's on the verge of filing bankruptcy right now. And Sony is jumping in to try to help him financially because there's been a spending problem. Whether it's him personally or someone in his camp that's dealing with his finances, there's a spending problem for somebody that has it all. And our, our, our culture actually encourages us to spend uncontrollably, to feed our desires. And you know it feels good to spend money. I mean, you're a liar if you say it doesn't. I mean, it feels good to, to buy stuff. The problem is, is you buy stuff and that feeling goes away after you get it and you get it home. Now you're looking for the next new iPhone, iPod, MacBook, couch, car. See, the resources that God has given you and I, they're on loan. They're on loan from the one who has it all. And our time and our talent, all of that put together, it equals 
money because that's how we're paid for our time and our talent. We're given money. So the, the way you spend your money is really the way you spend your life. And God does not want you to spend your life in uncontrollable ways, frivolously. So the, here's the first problem that this, this, this boy has is he's got Sam, our boy Sam, is, he's got some uncontrolled spending habits. The next thing it says that he, he has uncontrolled lust, really, because it says he has this wild living. Later on, we see that the brother says, hey, this guy's been hanging out with prostitutes. So he's got this uncontrolled lust that's up inside of him. Um, you could, maybe we can even throw uncontrolled drinking in there. I don't know what was going on in Vegas with Sam. But see, when you and I let our sexual appetite run rampant, we lose. When our sexual appetite, when the flesh gets to call the shots, we lose. David and Bathsheba is a prime example. A prime example of what happens when somebody that has a wife looks on and lives in his flesh with another person, ends up having to kill one of his best friends. His son dies. A kingdom starts to shatter around him. You know the number one way that we have an uncontrolled lust problem here right now in America? Pornography. Pornography. I don't know if you know this, there's 4 million pornographic websites. 15% of all websites are pornographic. In fact, 25% of everything that's put into a search, in, search engine actually directs you to a pornographic website. It's a huge problem. And a lot of times we don't want to talk about it. Like we don't really, we want to like ignore pornography out there. We really don't want to talk about it in church. In fact, some of you are getting squeamish right now. He's like, where's he going with this? Statistics show us, probably about 30% of you in here, the men, you're dealing with this. And it's a huge problem. You know why it's such a huge problem for us now with the internet is because you're always just a couple mouse clicks away in the privacy of your own home. You don't have to wear a funny hat and put a mustache on and go to a crazy building with no windows. You just lock yourself in a room. And you've got the computer. It's right there. And you can indulge in your flesh right there in your own home. And it's a problem. It's a problem. And when we live in our flesh, when we live at the desires of our flesh, it destroys lives and it destroys relationships. Rick Warren, I don't know if you know who he is. He's the lead pastor of a church called Saddleback. He wrote Purpose Driven Life. He was recently interviewed on national television and he said this. He says, in my flesh, I want to sleep with every beautiful woman I see, but I need to control that desire. Like I said, I'm going to be transparent because I don't go to church here. There ain't no cape on these shoulders here. I am not super trinity. And if I live in my flesh, I destroy my marriage of 10 years and I destroy the lives of my children. And no matter how much you think, well, it's just, it's just the flesh. And nobody knows. Yes, because you start looking at your wife, you start looking at the women around you, not as God created them to be, but as something to crave, something to, to feed your sexual appetite. And that, my friends, is wrong. And if we indulge in that, it leads us to destruction. So back to our story here, back to Sam, verse 14. 
About that time, his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him to feed his pigs, and the boy became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. And when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired men have food enough to spare. And here I am, dying of hunger. Verse 18 He says, I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired man. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long distance away, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, he kissed him, and his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick! Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we are fattening in the pen. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. And when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. He says, well, your brother's back. And he told him, your father's killed the calf we were fattening and has prepared a great feast. We're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I've worked hard for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the finest calf we have. His father said to him, look, dear son, you and I are very close and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So here we see that Sam's older brother is furious. We'll call him Bob. It's a good Jewish name. Bob is just ticked. Have you ever felt this way? Like you've done everything you're supposed to do and somebody else comes along and they haven't done everything they're supposed to do and yet they get honored? I'd be ticked too if I was Bob. I'd be mad. But that's exactly what's going on here. And his, his brother's fuming. He's upset. He's like, listen, I've done it all, Dad. I've done it all. No party for me. I never backtalked to you. I didn't spend my money. I, I wasn't losing my control with money and lust and, 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 and ambition. I, I didn't want to do anything else but serve you. But what's really going on here for Bob is he's got uncontrolled anger. He's letting control... He's losing his control over his emotions. And when you lose control over your emotions, it normally leads to anger. Maybe you don't have a problem with lust. Maybe you don't have a problem with drinking. Maybe you don't have a problem with spending. Maybe you don't even have a problem with ambition. Maybe it's anger. I mean, do people run for cover when your whistle starts to blow? When you get angry? That's a good question to ask because... Proverbs 29, 11 says this. This is a fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. Actually, the word fool there, we could actually retranslate it for you in the Hebrew there. It actually means an arrogant. When you're arrogant, when you think you've got it all together, when you're right, anger usually comes out of you when somebody steps on what's right for you, what you think's right. Listen, I'm, I'm honest again. This was me for the longest time. 
Paul for the longest time. I don't know what it is, but like sports brings that out of people. I played sports all throughout high school, even into college. And you guys know who Bobby Knight is? College basketball. I mean, you just Google that one. The guy will throw chairs onto the court. I mean, he's, he's infamous for his losing his control of his anger while in the middle of a basketball game. He l- jokes about it, about losing control. That was me on the sports field. And then it didn't just leave sports. It, it left when, when I would go in my life. I mean, the littlest things would set me off. And here's the reason why. Because I wasn't happy with myself. Because I wasn't happy with who I was anger would creep in and I would explode on those around me. And anger will kill you. It'll ruin relationships. And anger usually leads to an uncontrolled tongue. I'm sure nobody in here has this problem. We say the things you don't want to say and you go, I wish I could take that back. I mean, I bet you Don Imus wishes he could take back what he said on radio that cost him his job. Because he apologized later on and said, man, I wish I, I, I wish I didn't say that. I'm sorry. Or maybe Howard Dean would have been a Democratic nomination if he would have watched his tongue. Or maybe Annie Duke would have won Celebrity Apprentice <laughs> if she would have watched her tongue. Look, the bottom line is we could talk about a gazillion different areas this morning. I'm not even going to hit on them all. There's a gazillion different areas that you and I can lose control and I could hit yours and you could hit mine and we could sit and talk about all these things of why they're so destructive, why they hurt. But really, maybe I, maybe I just need to say this. I think there's a problem with most of us Americans. We live on the surface. We like surface level living. And so what comes out of our mouth even is surface level living. Like what we'll say things like, um, I can handle it. It's not really a problem. I can stop if I want to. My issue isn't that bad. And that's called denial. And so if we live on the surface and we say we don't have a problem when our spouse is nudging us going, yeah, you know what? You kind of lose your top. You're kind of angry. No, I'm not. Surface level living. Now, here's the thing is, I think we're even surface level in our actions. Because some of us are going, yeah, I've got a spending problem. I'm going to cut up my credit card. That's really good. You should do that. But that's really surface level living too. You go, what? Let me, I'm going I'm to throw another one at you, another bombshell. You got a problem with pornography? And so you put like the X3 watch on your computer. Like I've got that on my computer for my spouse. You can see any website that I go to if it's questionable whatsoever. It's really that's, that's surface level living. I'm trying to control the problem exterior. But here's really where you and I should move to. Why do I do these things. Why do I have a problem with my anger? What inside of me makes me lash out? Why do I get on the internet and look at images I shouldn't look at? What causes me in my flesh to want to jump into that? That's going deeper. And here, I I want us to walk out of here with something very practical. I want us to walk out of it because I think the Bible is very practical in all of its teachings. And I think you and I can add this this self-control to our faith. If you'll jump back up to verse 18 in this story, I think 
Jesus told this story for a whole different reason, but man, he, he taught us something really about self-control here. Verse 18, it says this. The, the Sam says, I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me as a hired man. The first step is repentance. Doesn't feel like we've said that like every week in this sermon series. You've got to confess. But here's the thing, because that's not denial. It's the opposite of denial, going, I've got a problem. There's something here that needs to change. And repent, the word repent, it's, it's like a terribly theological term. I hate the word repent. Because it makes it like, I think of like a big fat guy in a suit with a tie screaming and spitting in Alabama behind a pulpit. Like that's what I think of when I think of the word repent. And if you're any of those things, I'm sorry. <laughs> I've got a, I got a tongue problem. <laughs> I'm working on it. But repenting is, is actually doing this. It's going this way and going, huh, that's not the way I should go. I should probably go this way. That's repenting. It's stopping moving in this direction and going the other direction. It's not just saying that's wrong. It's going, I should never do that. Most of us don't do this. Our idea of repentance is just going, ooh, that's bad. And we're like a bug flying into a light. It's still going to kill you if you touch it, even though you know it is. Go the other way. And that's what this, this, this Sam did. He was like, this life is terrible. I'm leaving it. I'm going the other way. I'm done with this life. And really kind of the second thing is, in this, it's not just repenting, but it's contentment. He was going, you know what? The life that I have, I need to be content with that. Like searching for something more to life, actually too much of it is going to kill me. I want to be content with my life and be happy with me. I'm, I'm Sam, the younger brother. I'm Sam. I work on a farm. I'm Sam. That's a good life. Verse 22. But his father said to the servants, this is Sam come walking home and Bill, his dad, sees him. We're just giving these guys great Jewish names. He sees him and he says, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Now listen, here's what the robe would signify in the, in the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament is righteousness. Something that wore a robe was righteous. So as soon as he sees him, this is what the Father does to you and I. When we repent and we come back, he goes, give him righteousness. He doesn't have to earn it. I'm going to give it to him. He doesn't have to work for it. I'm going to give it to him. That's what God does to you and I. When we admit we've got these self-control problems and we're like, man, I, I, you know what? I've got a problem with drinking. I'm going that way. And God goes, here's your righteousness. You're good. Give him the robe. Bring him the robe. He's righteous in my eyes. The next thing it says that he gave him is, uh, he says, get a ring for his finger. Now, maybe sometimes you've read over this and you're like, what does that mean? He got a ring? You ever seen like a sports team that win? Everyone's got the big, huge rings. Maybe you were in a fraternity and you got a ring. Maybe you graduated from college or high school, you got a ring. Maybe you got married, you got a ring. Rings symbolize being part of something, being part of other people's lives. And he says, he's he's with us. Get him a ring. He's one of us. You can't do this on your own. You need other people. 
So repenting, being content, God laying the righteousness on you, and it goes further than that. You need to open up to other people and bring other people into your life with you. You need to open up and be like, listen, I got a problem in this area. I am a Facebook fanatic. Help me. I shop too much. Help me. I can't control my tongue. Help me. And getting other people around you that love you and letting them into our control areas. Here's the third thing that happened. He says, in sandals for his feet. Sandals for his feet. He says, put these sandals on his feet. Write this down if you're taking notes. This is why this is so important, the sandals. Only slaves did not wear shoes at this time. You are not a slave. You're not a slave. And his father said, his father said to him, you're not a slave. You're not going to be controlled by your lack of self-control. We're going to be here with you. You're part of our family. I give you righteousness. I take care of you. So really what you and I can learn from all this is to gain control to add self-control into our lives. We almost need to lose control to God. Repent. Let him clothe us in righteousness. Join his family. And know that you're not a slave. You are not a slave. I've learned this about myself. The more control I gain in my life, the closer I follow Jesus as the more self-control I gain. And I think that's why Peter says this, that as you add these God qualities into your life, as you take all of your experiences with God and you form them into some understanding and knowledge, you're going to learn and grow with God so much that you realize you can't do it. God controls it all, and he's in control. Repent and come and walk with him and let him have control. Will you pray with me? Our God and our King, the creator of all, God, we give you control that we may have self-control. God, we thank you for clothing us in your righteousness and putting that ring on our finger to be part of your family, God, and letting us know we're not slaves. We're not slaves to drinking. We're not slaves to spending. We're not slaves to our own selfish desires. God, it's really not our life, it's yours. We don't need church linebackers, God, we need you. God, we we give you control. And we walk out of here with that in our hearts and our minds. And we pray this in your precious name, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to be going into a time of worship. During worship, we, we normally take up tithes and offerings because it's part of worship. And if this isn't your home church, please don't feel obligated to give. But here at K2, this is something that we believe very deeply in. Because if God has our finances, he has our heart. It's kind of the, the biggest nerve in the body is the one between the heart and our pocketbook. And God doesn't just want little things from us. He wants our heart. So if he can have the sensitive areas, he can have it all. 
Remember this as, as, as we worship together. He wants everything in our life.